Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Before we start today's podcast, a quick heads up on Sherlock's VIP club. From restaurants, bars and hotels to beauty, wellness and shopping, Sherlock's partners with some of London's best destinations and hottest brands to bring its VIPs exclusive monthly offers. So why not sign up? It'll cost you just £5 a month or £50 for the year. Use your card once or twice and you'll have made that amount back in no time. For more information, visit sherlocksvip.com. In 2005, Thomasina Myers shot to fame as the winner of BBC Two's MasterChef with a style of food that was described as bold and at times eccentric. Food, however, was long part of her master plan after first visiting Mexico aged 18 when she fell in love with the country and its cuisine. Thomasina went on to launch her Mexican street-style food restaurant in 2007 and Oaxaca can now be found in over 25 locations across the country. With a fundamental pledge to ethics and sustainability, it was the first UK restaurant to be certified carbon neutral. An outbreak of norovirus in 2016 caused Oaxaca to temporarily close nine restaurants, but this did little to dampen the brand, which has continued to see growth at a time when so many are closing. Cook, writer, former MasterChef winner, restaurateur and mother to three young girls, Thomasina Myers, welcome to your Sherlock success story. Thank you. So let's go back. How did you even get into food? Has it been a part of your life from day dot? I was so bad at dolls that I think I retreated to the kitchen. My brother and sister would spend hours happily playing and I would just get bored. And somehow in the kitchen I could find something to do. I had an obsession with being as close to my mother as possible as a real mother's girl oh, sweet. Um, so I just wanted to be pressed next to her and I found that sitting near her up on a stool and watching what she did when she cooked our supper was really interesting and she from a very early age taught me how to make a white sauce or how to sweat onions and I, I found all that stuff really fascinating and I found that this was an area that I could really play in after school I could just get stuck in and, and start creating things and she was a good cook she was a great home cook. She could extract the most flavour from very simple ingredients. Very clever cook. And I've discovered that when you started playing with ingredients and produced something on the table, you got this amazing adulation. People are like, oh, thank you so much. Got this <laughs> wonderful kind of warm, fuzzy glow when people said, oh, I love it. It's delicious. And I guess I started falling in love with that as well. So it was a hobby. It was something you did after school. When did it become more than a hobby? Did you go into food after you left school? It took ages, actually, because my school was quite academic. And I think their aim was to get girls out of the kitchen as quickly as possible and, you know, into an office yeah, space. You can't possibly be successful and work in food. It was a real anathema in those days mm. before this food explosion that women almost shouldn't be cooking. And, and I'm completely of the opposite 
mindset. I feel that food not only nourishes your soul, it nourishes your physical health and your mental health. It's a survival skill. So, you know, if you if you can't eat, you die. So why would you outsource that most basic fundamental principle of survival to a stranger? You know, a lot of people buy ready meals and great, you know, sometimes that's a meal solution. I'm not saying that's bad, but to just survive on those seems crazy. Why would you trust a stranger to feed you? So you left school. You didn't plan to go into food at that point? I think in those days, it was either being a chef in a kitchen where notoriously the hours were awful and you never saw your friends, or it was being, you know, a posh totty catering company thing. And I, I couldn't really identify myself in either of those things. So what did you do? So my father kind of pushed me down the path of finance. He wanted me to make a million dollars where he had <laughs> failed. And I was a VAT consultant. I worked in various different businesses. I tried a bit of fashion. I tried marketing and advertising. I literally tried anything and everything. I think I was a digital strategist at the height of the dot-com boom when Martha Lane Fox was all over the buses and I was just bored out of my mind. I, f- I felt fundamentally flawed. I just couldn't find anything to get my teeth stuck into and I do think for young people these days that is the biggest challenge. Mm. Like how do you find what your passion is? Yeah, absolutely. It's not often until later in life that you have the courage to explore that. So BAT consultant, digital marketing, what took you into food? Well, it was desperation, actually. I was in a fashion show with Clarissa Dixon-White, one of the two fat ladies. Right. I was modelling a barber bikini. She was modelling a barber coat. It's a bit random. But I was properly depressed and miserable at this stage. I, I was kind of 26. I had no idea what I was doing in my life. All my friends around me were kind of beginning to kind of succeed in whatever jobs they were doing. And I literally felt desperate. And I said to her, help. And she said, what are your passions in life? And I remember saying to her, well, food. I mean, that's why I was talking to her, because I was obsessed with food. I've been cooking since I was six. And I stayed cooking, always, always cooked. And she looked at me like I was a cretin. She's like, why aren't you cooking then? She should follow your passions. And she got me uh, bumped up a waiting list to get onto a cooking school in Ireland called Ballymaloo, which is in East Cork. And that really changed my life. So you went, you got in. Yeah. And the course lasted for how long? I was there for three months in this kind of heaven of producers and fishing and making sourdough bread. And uh, I then moved to West Cork where I made cheese for a few months and started making bread and selling at a market with a friend of mine, Clodagh McKenna, who's also uh, quite a well-known cook. And it was heaven. I mean, at some stage I thought I'd better get back to London because my boyfriend at that stage was getting restless. <laughs> <laughs> and I got a job in a shop called Valandry which was this wonderful bakery Mm. come deli come restaurant and it was great I kind of I'd used all the jobs I'd done previously so I I wrote their newsletter I set up their website Uh, I sold their incredible freshly made sourdough breads and it wasn't wasted that digital marketing it's never wasted nothing's wasted in life I think that's really important Mm. I think it's so easy to feel desperate about life and think oh no why did I waste my time doing that why did I do this and actually, every time you make a mistake, you're learning anyway. Yeah. Uh, so I think nothing's wasted. Quite agree. So you were at Villandry. Yeah. Doing everything. I mean, it was amazing, Villandry. Thinking this is 15 years ago, making freshly baked croissant every day in the bakery. It was really ahead of its time. I was literally in a food heaven. But after a year and a half, I started getting restless. And I thought I must go somewhere, maybe just abroad and just do some traveling and food exploring. And I really loved the idea of going to Barcelona with that all the amazing food that was coming out of Spain at the time. But I also had this calling 
to go back to Mexico. Because Where you've my... been when you were 18? When I was 18, I'd spent four months travelling in Mexico. I totally loved the food. It was so delicious. I remember spending four months when I was 18 just drinking tequila and eating hot, fiery ceviches on the beach and mm, just going crazy. And that was 10 years before. By this time, I was 28, and I just thought... That food, that amazing food I remember, it's still, I can't see it anywhere in, in England. Mexican food that I discovered then was nowhere. And I thought, well, was my memory playing tricks on me? Was it as good? Was it imagination? Was it a mirage? So I thought I must go back. We'll get to Oaxaca, but were you already thinking someone needs to bring that over here? Or did that epiphany come later? I basically, when I went, when I was 18 to Mexico and discovered this vast country they call Mexico the cuisines of Mexico because there are many different cuisines the food is really regional it's one of the most biodiverse countries in the world scores of ingredients come from Mexico whether the 200 varieties of chilies 80 varieties of corn whether they're blue corn black corn red corn white corn uh, tropical fruit wild greens wild herbs avocados uh, peanuts come from Mexico cacao vanilla courgettes and pumpkins you know this huge tomatoes it's <laughs> just crazy amounts of ingredients come from mexico and all these different regions cook them in different ways and they have their own microclimates so it's extraordinary the food and i remember discovering a bit of this food when i was 18 getting back to england and london was pretty diverse even 20 years ago you could get food from all around the world but there was no mexican there's tex-mex everywhere and that's what we all thought of as Mexican. Mm. But none of the food that I tried there. So even back when I was kind of 18, I was intrigued. How come I can't get those lovely soft corn tortillas here? And I think then when I moved back to Mexico 10 years later, I was definitely thinking there is a massive gap here. I mean, someone at some stage has got to bring Mexican over. And when I went back and opened this cocktail bar in Mexico City... Every weekend I went out to different states, whether it's at Oaxaca or Veracruz or the Yucatan. I go off traveling and, and exploring the food in the different regions. And all my mates in Mexico City, we were a big, vast, motley crew of Brits, Mexicans, French, you know, kind of international crowd. And we would spend our entire time going to get tacos in the best places. And I kept thinking, it's not just me here. Mm. Everyone else here is obsessed with the food. Mm. So it's I'm not an outlier. And I just couldn't help thinking that, that the Brits would love it too. I mean, mm. if, if I loved it, why wouldn't anyone else love it? Well, we do, don't we? Yeah. So you were 28, you went back to Mexico. How long were you there for? I was there for a year, which was great. Mexico City was wild. We had a lot of fun. I made some great friends and ate a lot, drank a lot and travelled a lot. And, and really that travelling really made me learn about this regionality. It's such a foodie country. It's like Italy. I was, you know, people talk about the regionality of Italian food. Mexico is like that 10 times over. It's such a vast country divided by desert, river, rainforest, and also language. So the peoples, there are 62 native languages still alive today. And all those different dialects kept these people apart, which meant that, you know, from village to village, even they cook things different, mm. differently. So you came back after a year. And what happened next? So I got back. I was quite broke at this stage because I'd been, you know, twiddling my thumbs and working what on earth I was doing for about 10 years at this stage. And I was cooking for families, looking after kids, doing anything really while I was working out what to do next. And about that stage... I looked in a magazine because I thought I could be a food writer and there was this ad saying, do you want to be the next Jamie Oliver or Nigella? And it was an ad for MasterChef. Mm -hmm. It was the first year of the revamped programme with John Trade and Greg Wallace. And so I entered, didn't tell anyone, 
didn't really know why I'd even entered. But I suddenly got a call going, we'd love you to come for... What? How do you enter? You fill in a form. So you just enter a paper form. Then I got a call up. I was in Norfolk looking after these kids and this family. And they said, can you come in? It's the last heat. Uh, but if you can get to us by Friday afternoon, four o'clock, we'll just be able to fit you in for an interview. So I spoke to the family. They're very excited. They said, you can leave early if you get tea ready. So I like woke up very early, prepped everything. I had to take a dish with me. So I think I did an old Murray recipe that I adapted a bit of uh, grilled aubergine with caramelised garlic and mint and vinegar and just oh, chilli, just kind of feta, olive oil. And I had it in my Tupperware and I was driving my 2CV down from Norfolk to London and I hit some traffic and I remember calling my father in those days. You could call and drive, uh, a bit more <laughs> lax. And uh, I remember saying, I'm never going to make it. It's Friday, I'm not going to get there in time. It's like, there's a train from Royston at 3.22 if you get that train. I remember screeching my car into the Royston car park. Abandoning Tearing out. The, the, the aubergine spilt out all over the train platform, scraped it back into the top where it leapt on the train as it's pulling out of the station and made it to my interview. And I got it through to the heat the first heat and didn't know what to expect I thought it was a bit of a joke didn't really watch television at the time I kind of was standing on my head and being a real idiot in the uh, waiting room and then they suddenly wheeled out the cameras and said right you've got 20 minutes to make the most perfect mashed potato and at that stage I realized it was the most terrifying thing I'd ever subscribed to and I didn't know what I was doing and the process lasted for how long we were in a kind of bubble of recipes and food for about six weeks and is it as intense as you're led to believe uh, it's mental so I wake up every day at five o'clock in the morning and read Jane Grigson Elizabeth David anything I could get hold of to, to teach myself I was completely self-taught so I had no I'd never eaten a Michelin star restaurant we didn't eat in restaurants because my parents cooked my father loved cooking too so we never went out to eat and I, so but suddenly, I think we're a similar age I think I definitely grew up and we you just didn't go out no but you know Never. Yeah, once yeah. in a blue it's a different moon. Different world, yeah. Different world. So, uh, very special treat only. Yeah, exactly. So, I was really learning on the hoof, but it was a really exciting. Greg and John were actually quite nurturing to everyone. And I think what stood me in good stead is I had always loved food and I was cooking with such passion. And I think that showed through because definitely I lacked a bit of finesse. There were some disastrous <laughs> moments in the kitchen. Do you remember what the dish was that you're most proud of? There were a couple of rounds I did really well on. There was one round, I think it was the quarterfinals to get through to the semifinals. I cooked a three courses of Mexican food. So I did a ceviche, I did grouse with mole, and then wow. I did a kind of flambéed crepe thing. And particularly the grouse, I remember Greg saying, what are you doing? This beautiful <laughs> bird, this weird sauce. And then he tasted it. He was just like oh, it's delicious, but I don't know what it is. How can I judge it? And I was like, surely delicious is the only judgment. Uh, (laughs) But that was fun. And then my winning dish, I made a ravioli. So I was living with a chef at the time. My old flatmate is the head chef at the River Cafe. And uh, I'd never made ravioli before, much less even pasta. And I waited for him late into the night. And he taught me how to make ravioli the night before the finals. Because it was the first one, I think nowadays the finalists are so organised, they make their final dishes 25 times or you know, 30 times to kind of really perfect them. I was definitely flying by the seat of my pants. You're winging it. Winging it. I wing it a bit less these days, I'm glad to say. <laughs> well, you won it, it didn't matter. And what happened afterwards? Did you come out of that and go, right, I'm going to open a Mexican restaurant? 
it was confusing. It took four months for it to go live. So I was twiddling my thumbs for another four months thinking, what do I do? And I actually went to work for Sky Gingell then. I actually started chefing for the first time. I went to cook at Peacham Nurseries, which was incredible. There was a kitchen garden. I would go out, I'd cycle to Richmond and then I'd go out into the kitchen garden and pick some vegetables and then we'd cook them. It was really dreamy. I think at that stage, if I'd gone into Michelin-style kitchen, I would have been peeling potatoes for a year or two. I was 29 at this stage. And I felt like I had a lot of work to catch up on. At Petersham, I worked on every section. You know, I learnt pastry, I learnt the grills, and it was just incredible. And Skye is such an incredible intuitive cook, and she has such an incredible sense of flavour, and, and, you know, she uses Mm. spices from around the world. It was absolutely incredible that time. After that, randomly, I met my business partner, who I'd been at university with. A friend had put us in touch because he wanted to set up a restaurant and we went to the pub for a drink and he started talking about Mexican food. He'd also been to Mexico on his gap year and he talked about burritos. I was just like, no, forget the burritos. There are so many cooler things than burritos in Mexico. I mean, tacos. He'd never heard of tacos before, really. And I took him to Mexico for 10 days and we travelled around all my favourite restaurants. With the view that let's set up a business together. I think by that stage, I was thinking, yeah, let's go for it. It was kind of like serendipity. Meeting this guy who wanted to open a restaurant, he'd been to Mexico before. And, you know, after that year of living in Mexico, eating all these incredible restaurants, I knew there was something in it. Mm. Uh, I just didn't know really anyone in the restaurant industry. But then MasterChef gave me some confidence and so it was just really good timing. And a platform and contacts, yeah. I'm sure. And, yeah. You know, you've got to use these things. You've got you? to use these things. It's hard to highlight how much food has changed in the last 11 years. I mean, in my rounds of MasterChef, we were learning how to ballantine a chicken leg. <laughs> it was really quite old fashioned. Yeah. And when we opened our first Oaxaca, you know, we were doing street food. We were the first people to do street food. And where did that vision come from? Because I was going to ask you that exact thing. Why street food? In Mexico, the best food is on the street and even the smartest restaurants get their inspiration from the streets. Uh, And that is where, you know, one storeholder has made the most perfect blue corn tortilla filled with courgette flowers and queso fresco. You know, she's made that same tortilla for 20 years. And I think that's what you find on the streets. You find lots of different storeholders from different regions of Mexico cooking their dish immaculately. And that's how you eat. That's how you, you, you go out and you get a taco or you don't have lunch in Mexico till three. So from about 11, when you start getting hungry, I used to start the day with a fresh fruit juice of guava or papaya, mango, pineapple. And then at about 11, I start getting hungry and I'd start going down to the streets and just kind you spend of... spend four hours working out where to go. Yeah, just like kind of snacking along. It's just such a fun way. They're called antojitos, little whims, little kind of bits to kind of tweak your appetite. So tell me about Mark. What qualities did he have that made you think he was the right business partner for you? The amazing thing about Mark, which was complete fluke, but we couldn't have designed it better, was that he was really good at the stuff that I wasn't at all interested in. And then the stuff that I was good at he wasn't that interested in so we had very complementary skills and I think you know when you're young and passionate you want to set up a business with a friend of yours you don't really think about having different skill sets but we had completely different skill sets that made us really really work well together although in the early days we really clashed because we were so different and I think we found it very difficult learning how to work together how did you get over that how did you learn to work together so our investors who are brilliant guys said you guys need a counselor think about it as a marriage you know a business partnership in many ways is like a marriage you spend more time with your business partner than 
mm. you know, probably more than your husband or wife at, at times. And, you know, it's a very intense relationship. And at times you need counselling. You need someone to get you to talk about your issues. Yeah, it's probably, uh, it's probably to, quite it's smart. Very, very smart. She taught me how to appreciate the stuff that he was good at. And she taught him to appreciate the stuff I was good at. And to kind of, you know, work with our more annoying habits. <laughs> very sensible. So you took Mark to Mexico he got it, he saw the opportunity, you came back. And how much time passed before you opened your first Oaxaca? It took us a year to find a site. This was pre-recession, pre-food explosion. If you didn't have a massive name behind you, you just could not get a site. No landlord would risk a new startup. It was a completely different era. So it took a long time to get a site. In the end, we found this random decrepit old Irish pub in a basement which we had to spend three weeks kind of scrubbing the sick off the floors and nice you know it's really nice but it was incredibly cheap uh, and it was where uh, Covent Garden Chandos Place and that was 2007 2007 and how did you fund that decrepit site because presumably it wasn't the cheapest well we were very lucky so Mark before that he'd always wanted to be an entrepreneur he loved the theatre he'd gone out of his way to work with entrepreneurs and at this stage he'd spent two years working with two guys who'd set up Nando's in this country they were South African entrepreneurs and he was so great at what he did that he persuaded them to back him so we had the backing that was kind of all sorted and in fact we've got exactly the same backing as when we started so when people talk about us like a chain I slightly bristle because I see us still we're still an independent company owned by exactly the same people as when we started we've got the same long-term vision that any small independent restaurant would have which is why we invest in things like sustainability and stuff that any big group who's owned by a kind of venture capital just wouldn't do we have a very long-term vision for our company which I think stands us apart and did you always have that vision from day one did you always plan to open the amount of sites that you have because there are how many now in total 25 so we've got 25 Oaxacas and two DF Mexicos I think to answer that question we had no idea how it was going to be received because although I knew Mexican food was delicious Mexican food had a really bad reputation Tex-Mex had sold itself so Tex-Mex is from a part of Texas that used to be used to belong to Mexico it's a tiny region of the United States of America that cooks a certain type of food in a similar style to Mexican food pretty much up to that the similarities stop it is not Mexican food (laughs) and yet it has managed to sell itself as Mexican so that bad reputation of heavy refried beans, loads of dairy, cheap tequila, that had done a real disservice. Whenever I talked to any of my friends in the food industry, they were like, you're crazy. Mexican food is filthy. I'd meet Italian chefs who'd say, oh, I gather you're a chef. And then I'd say, yeah, I love Mexican food. And they'd look at me with disgust as if I had chef? no idea Call what I was talking about. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so we had this massive uphill. So, you know, in terms of did we think we were going to have 100 sites or We had no idea if one site was going to work. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. 
So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And one site did work. And tell us about that and the reaction you got and how you got people in the door. That site was a miracle. So we opened. We were so terrified. Neither of us had any idea what we were doing. You know, I'd spent six months working at Peacham Nurseries. I'd never run my own kitchen. Mark had very little operational experience. We, I think our average age was about 23 or 24. We had lots of very young, passionate people working for us. And we got so many things wrong when we opened. We didn't tell anyone that we were opening. I think we kind of delayed. We kept saying, oh, we're going to open in a few weeks. We quietly opened our doors. And then one of my best friends from school brought a journalist with her. She was working in a magazine at the time. And he let the cat out of the bag. And after that, we just got flooded. I think because we were doing something so new, we had a kind of no booking policy. We were doing street food. The food kind of came fast. Well, it was supposed to come fast. In the early days didn't come fast at all. Were you all. cooking the food in the early days? Yeah, I was the head chef, which was great. I loved it. Just such a buzz. We had an open kitchen and this queue formed, you know, three weeks in when he gave us not a very flattering review. Remember, I had no idea what I was doing. All these recipes I developed in my shepherd's bush kitchen for four people, I then had to double and triple and quadruple. We would order two boxes of avocados and run out. And then the next day we'd order three boxes of avocados. No guacamole left. Then we'd order five boxes of avocados. By the end of it, we were opening. We were ordering 20 boxes of avocados a day just to cope with people's insatiable appetite for guacamole. So we lost a lot of weight. We never (laughs) slept. Uh, It was full on, but it was so exciting. From the open kitchen, all you could see was this queue that snaked up the stairs and out the street. And I think for anyone who's starting a food business, they'll appreciate that there's nothing worse than having an empty restaurant. So although a lot of issues came with not being able to cope with the amount of people coming through the door and how much time they had to queue... It's so much better that way and so exciting. And were you making money? Tell us about, you know, making money in the restaurant business is notoriously hard. Well, right now we're in the hardest time we've ever been in for restaurants. You know, anyone can read in the newspapers that people are shutting restaurants left, right and centre. I think there is a real issue right now, particularly in London, with rates. And it's not just restaurants are affected. There are no local toy shops in my area anymore. They've all shut down. Local Mm. bicycle shops have shut down. I think years of austerity have made councils try and scrape money in any which way. Mm. And I sadly, I think the huge rise in rates is really affecting the high street. Mm. And I think that's really sad. We had this idea of clone town Britain 15 years ago and people tried to resurrect the high street and places like Borough Market were brilliant at bringing independence. Sadly, I think we're killing it again. And I think only the massive chains will survive Mm. if the rates carry on being so crushing. There's a living wage which has gone up. And again, as a business owner, of course, you have to pay your staff enough that they can live on. But the reason it's so expensive to live in London is because we haven't built enough homes for people to live in. And it feels slightly unjust that the government is putting that cost onto business owners rather than just building more homes. And the rent situation is insane. Landlords can literally double them up. Uh, And I think that's one of the reasons why you've seen so many closures not just in my sector but also in retail going back to restaurant number two 
that took how long before that took a year from Uh, opening the first to opening the second yeah and I think that was the hardest thing we did opening a second restaurant because with one restaurant you're all one team you're all living the dream together yeah you've got to split up and then you've got to split up and that was so hard and I think it's a very hard time a young company has this amazingly exciting time of growing and then that kind of adolescent bit is really tricky where you're expanding and you've got to keep on looking after your staff, keep the dream going, keep that belief going. I mean, we still have that same mission. You know, we have a kind of almost evangelical mission to spread the word that Mexican food is vibrant and delicious. It's healthy, it's fresh. And actually, I still feel we need to spread that word. Back then, it was so easy with one restaurant. We all had this proper mission. But then when you split the team, it gets really difficult. So that was a real learning curve. And then you split it and split it and split it. And you open... I mean, how quickly did the rollout of all your other sites come? So we grew really slowly at the beginning. And I think the fact that our investors had a long-term vision, we had a long-term vision, really helped with that. We opened at the same time as lots of the big chains who are alive today. And we watched them grow and we were literally just like, how are they doing that? We didn't even know how it was possible. I mean, our food is fresh and we've got quite a big menu. So there's a lot of prep in our kitchens. We literally didn't know how we would do that. And I don't think we were in a hurry to open loads of restaurants either uh, because we didn't have some money men behind us going, you must make X million per year. That was lovely that we could pick and choose our sites a bit more. Mm. Like yeah, our South Bank site which is still one of our most iconic sites with the, in the shipping containers on the river uh, underneath the Hayward Gallery. So that was fun. And I think probably in the last couple of years, saw the biggest expansion. But definitely in those early years, you know, we opened one in a year, then we opened another one in a year. Then we, I think we opened two in year three and four. It was pretty slow and sustained. I'm grateful for that. We take our staff out to Mexico we really teach them about Mexican food. I think that was important. Let's talk about sustainability because I know that's really important to you and the business model. How did you manage that in the early days? Because it's probably not the cheapest way to do things. I think for me, the second I knew we were going to open more than one site, that sustainability was so important to me. I'd always been a bit of an eco-warrior and I couldn't help thinking that here was a chance to show anyone who was interested that you could have a successful business that also cared about its carbon footprint. And it seemed to me so obvious that we could just work it into our DNA from the word go. So we were the first people to... Uh, test a prototype of glass crushing for recycling glass we were the second restaurant in london to recycle our food waste we work with the msc from the word go Um, we've had a relationship with them for 10 years they're the marine stewardship council so much as i'd love to put tuna on the menu or octopus or you know there's lots of seafood that would be that we'd make lots of money selling and be very popular we just don't do it and do you think the customer buys into Oaxaca because of that sustainability model or do you do it for your own beliefs? Do you have that battle in your mind as to am I doing this for myself or for the business? I think we're doing it for ourselves more than anything just because we believe that's the only way for businesses to be in this Mm -hmm. climate of global population explosions you know we've always had a huge amount of vegetarian dishes on the menu because I've always found you know once you get to a certain scale having organic chicken it's just not possible people don't want to pay for it so if I can offer them lots of lovely seasonal vegetables instead then that's great we try not to shout about it too much because I can't stand you know someone 
hectoring you, bashing you over your Yeah, their it gets back. a bit tedious, doesn't it? Gets it gets so tedious. You want to have a company that's fun to be yeah. in and buzzy. You don't want a company that goes, thou shalt not do this. Or yeah. So I think we've never tried to ram it down people's throats. So I think some people probably don't know about our sustainability. I think quite a lot of our customers do. They You found out about it incidentally. I think then that's a boost. I think it's nice if people yeah, discover I, it about you. I agree. I didn't know. and I think it is a boost. It gives you a good feeling about and it. And it's great for our staff. Our staff really love it. They really buy into it. That's great. Let's talk about something not so positive about your norovirus time issue incident in 2016. Sounds like it was a pretty tough time for the business. Yeah, it was horrendous. But you dealt with it pretty well and pretty admirably. Yeah. What happened? I'm literally getting uh, shivers down my spine thinking back to it. So we got an outbreak of norovirus, which is not food poisoning. I think the best thing about it was that we tested and found and discovered it was not food poisoning before it hit the press so we were able to immediately say that this is an outbreak of norovirus but it did hit as you said lots of our restaurants it was extraordinary the way it spread we had a tiny business called df mexico that wasn't hit at all and yet we were hit in edinburgh manchester and london so it was an awful time we made a lot of people sick including our own staff how do you get an outbreak of norovirus because it's something i mean i've had it twice and it's i went so, to the hospital it was horrendous yeah it comes in on a food chain so on seafood right. most cases 95 percent of cases norovirus comes in seafood and then five percent comes in on things like lettuce and herbs so, so it was on food that you so so basically on on some fresh herbs they've gone in to make a, a chili paste. I see. So it was a really horrendous time because we'd always had such clean kitchens and such fresh food and we'd always prided ourselves so much on the quality of our food. Our only consolation was that we could talk to lots of very well-known chefs that had it, albeit in one restaurant as opposed to so many. So it was a really bad time. I think still people don't really understand the difference between a norovirus to a food poisoning. People and the difference is... Confuse Well, the difference is food poisoning is when you haven't cooked your food well and, you know, the food's off or, you know, there are bugs in your food. Whereas norovirus is an airborne virus that comes in on food, but it's not to do with your cooking. It's spread from person to person. Um, So rather than in your food. And how did you deal with it on a PR level? Well, I think we just were as honest as we could be. I think we've always tried to tell our customers exactly what's going on, where our food comes from, what we do. And I think we thought honesty was the only way we could go forward. So we held our hands up. We tried really hard to write to every single customer who'd been made ill. We printed these letters with um, wildflower seeds and hand wrote like apology letters to everyone said you know even if you throw this letter away we hope that some good will come of it um the idea that wildflowers could spring up where they'd thrown away the letter in disgust i never want to come back but actually lots of people did come back i think because we were so open about it people like a.a gill who hated mexican food i met him in mexico city a decade before you know, went out on Instagram going, I can't wait to come back to Oaxaca. I love it so much. You know, we had so many Amazing. messages of support Amazing. from our customers. And that actually, I mean, it still brings tears to my eyes today. The, the support and the kind of our fans did so much to kind of support us. So we bounced back fairly quickly, although, you know, we lost a huge amount actually at the time. And it was a proper shockwave. It could have done for us. And I think what was so shocking is when you've got a new business and your startup, you're so kind of caught up with the passion and the 
creativity of it you don't ever foresee such a mammoth event that could literally just destroy you in one fell swoop luckily I think because of our passion for what we did and our honesty that carried us through and we're in quite a saturated market there's a lot of competition now how do you stand out from that so I think for me it's about never being complacent I am always going to Mexico always trying to develop new recipes we had an amazing chef over from Chicago Mexican chef he came and did a supper club with us in our test kitchen in Shoreditch Last week, people just, I mean, the atmosphere was incredible. People raved. Oh my God, it's so incredible. We cooked six courses together. The food was delicious. It had an amazing atmosphere. And, you know, now for my winter menu, I've got loads of ideas to cook new dishes. I'm always trying to train my chefs. You know, we do these trips to Mexico. We engage with our customers. We've got a whole new brand piece happening at the moment. I think the biggest thing for a business is not to stay still and mm. to always be innovating. Mm. But I think we always loved innovating. You know, we were the first people to use FlyPay so that you could pay with your mobile telephone. You know, that we've done lots of firsts, carbon neutral. Um, so entrepreneurs in you. You know, it's fun. You know, otherwise you yeah. get bored. So I think coming up with fresh ideas for the menu and always talking to our customers. And, and that's where DF Mexico was born too, which is a new business we've got, which is going yeah. crazy. So, so tell us about... <laughs> Yeah, Mexico. You've got two sites. We've got two sites. I think it's a cheeky younger sister or brother of Oaxaca. If and where you, are your sites? In Tottenham Court Road, near the cinema, and um, just off Brick Lane in the Truman Brewery. So if you can imagine an American diner clashing with a really cool Mexican street food place, that's what it would look like. And we took all the... Mexico City and the whole of Mexico is full of very incredible design. It's very artistic and cultural, kind of creativity crazy. So the design element was very strong for us and very important for us for DF Mexico. And it's full of crazy kids, millennials, who just can't get enough of it. Is it a lower price point? It is a tiny bit lower. I think it's the same kind of quality as Oaxaca, but it's a bit more fast, casual. You know, you could turn yeah. up in your tracksuit, no one will look out of pace. We do these incredible crinkle-cut fries with chipotle mayo. It's a lot of fusion. Oh, that sounds good. It, it is really delicious. I think for Oaxaca... I was trying so hard not to be American and Tex-Mex that I was very purist about the food being strictly Mexican. Whereas DF is a bit more fun, I can kind of... Well, it's lucky you were, because it means you can have two different identities. Yeah, yeah. it's fun. It's really fun. And the menu's quite different? The menu's very different. The youth seem to love it. Now, I go into our sites, I'm literally gazing at all the kind of hot young boys, you know. Yeah, you suddenly, you suddenly realise how much you're aging yes. when you go somewhere like that. Really. <laughs> and, and what's your plan for DF Mexico? To open more sites? I think we could definitely open more sites. I mean, we're in Pergola on the Roof in Paddington at the moment, which, you know, it's our second year there. They love it. Um, we're in Swingers in East London too. So I think a few more sites of that would be great. Oaxaca, I feel... You know, we're in Edinburgh, we're in Brighton, we're in Liverpool, Manchester. I don't really want to have too many Oaxacas. I think the food is really special. I'd like to keep the food really special. I'm still really proud of the food. You know, I'd happily walk in with a food critic any day of the week. I think DF Mexico could grow more easily. Yeah, I think that would be fun. Um, We've got our retail range, um, which we're just relaunching, which is exciting. And then, you know, who knows, the supper clubs. You know, I get these incredible chefs over from Mexico 
How do day. people listening go to one of your supper clubs? I guess just keep an eye, subscribe to our mailing list or hacker or check out Instagram feed because, yeah, we're always getting amazing chefs over and they're really fun. You know, we showcase great tequilas and mezcals and just really wonderful. Uh, Jonathan Thalagotha, who I met in Chicago four years ago on a food recce trip, cooked this wonderful beetroot mole and he tossed the beetroot in a chapuline vinaigrette. Chapulines are grasshoppers. Just was wonderful, fresh vinaigrette, and then this wonderful, kind of deep orange mole. And mole is a sauce, mm. so guacamole is an avocado sauce. Um, and they make hundreds of different moles in Mexico. And uh, some of the new moles are really fun, the vegetarian based ones. The pre Hispanic Mexican diet was that's before the Spanish arrived, was rich in, in vegetables and seeds. And it was very, very healthy, nutritious diet. And I love talking about that because people think about Mexican food being quite meat heavy, whereas that's quite a new, you know, the 1400s, the pig arrived and up north they started cooking more with beef. But before that, it was a very much a foraged agrarian. Interesting. Yeah. Let's talk about delivery. How's that affected the business? I mean, you can't get Oaxaca through delivery, can you? Well, at the you moment... You can get DF Mexico, is that right? Yeah, I think the trouble with the corn tortilla is it's a very delicate product <laughs> and it doesn't travel well. Do you want it to break? So uh, you don't want it to break. You don't want it to go cold. A cold tortilla is no one's friend. I see the, the challenge. I mean, I just would hate someone to eat some Oaxaca food and think, ugh, this is this yeah. it. So the food in Jeff Mexico travels really well, actually. We mix it up with corn flour, mixed tortillas, and those are great for, for traveling. So we use delivery there, and it's been great. It's been absolutely brilliant. I do think it's something that's here to stay. You know, the young love to yeah. get takeaways and, eat and you know, have parties at home. Why not? So I think you have to embrace it. As I get older, I look at some of my friends who are in their 80s or 90s. I think about my grandmother who was from Texas and who was testing out our death slide in our garden when we were tiny and travelling on the back of my father's motorbike so she could go to Harrods for her shopping. She was a... Woman asked my own heart. Sounds cool. Yeah, she was cool. In her late 80s, she was trying to wear the same jeans I was wearing. I think if you sit on your heels and don't adapt, then you might as well be a dinosaur. It's like I have friends of mine who don't understand social media. I'm going, come on, guys, get with the program. Just because you're in your 40s doesn't mean you have to die already. It's not over. Yeah, so I think things like delivery and technology, you've got to embrace it. But you're not setting out to make Oaxaca the next Wagamamas. No, I think the lovely thing about Oaxaca, which goes back to us still being independent and privately owned, is that we don't have to do anything we don't believe in. Mm. So we still, every business decision we make strategically about what we would like to do and what we'd be proud of. And I think that's really critical to our business model. So yes, making a bit of money is great. I sense there's more in you than just making money. I think it sounds like you care too much. We care about the food above everything and and whether our staff are having fun. We care about the buzz of the restaurant and the food quality. And without those, you're nothing. Without those, there's no fun in it Mm. anymore. Mm. And we are only around to have fun. Tell me... Your role in the business today is what? Because it's clearly very different from when you were head chef in Carl Garden. So I still totally actively involved in all the development of the food and the new ideas. I try and hang out with my chefs a lot and inspire them. I go round up to our restaurants and taste the food. I've always had a three-day-a-week role, apart from the early days when I was head chef. So in my off days, I'm writing my column in The Guardian and you know books and stuff. It's a really different role. It's hanging out with our team, making sure our team are inspired, making them believe what we're doing. It's really fun. You've had your children in the lifetime of Oaxaca. How have you managed that? I know you've got a quite a young third. 
I think the three day a week was really helpful for that for me. Presumably, to to... that presumably that's not been since the beginning. No, but it was quite early on from when we opened our second site when I had to essentially step out of the kitchen. I negotiated that. And I think it's been great because I've hung out with my kids a bit. And also the very nature of what I do, I'm when I'm at home working, I'm either writing or I'm cooking. And when I'm cooking, I'm in the kitchen and hanging out with them. You know, they're getting under my feet and tasting what I'm tasting. So what I do is quite intuitive with bringing up children, which is fun. I actually love the maternal side of feeding. I think actually any cook, whether they're male or female, buys into that very nurturing thing that a cook has. You know, feeding people gives you real pleasure. So I think that's been fun. And if you're feeding people at home, what would you give them? Oh my God. I mean, when I'm cooking at home, I literally am doing the kind of the latest thing I've read about. Or I Is it always t- Mexican? No, not at all. If you imagine I'm cooking Mexican Do you hate it? You're like, I'm not going to cook anything but Mexican. Well, I went to live in Mexico when I was 28. So, so from 6 to 28, I was cooking Spanish, French, Middle Eastern, Indian, everything you could think of. I love food from all over the world. So typically, if I'm having a dinner party, I will have bought something from the market because I shop when I'm in London at my local market. Give us a starter, a main and a pudding. So I have a structure. I never know what the ingredients are going to be because it depends on the season. It's always very seasonally driven. But starting with a salad is always good. Um, Something light to whet the appetite. So delicious leaves. We grow leaves in our garden as well, but you can buy great leaves in our market as well so you know rocket or mustard leaf mixed up with a bit of supermarket cos or or baby gem and then toss in some roasted squash if it's the autumn or some roasted beetroot or some wonderful shaved courgette if it's the summer uh, or some char-grilled aubergine in in the summer beautiful tomatoes maybe if you want to put some dairy on you could put some goat's curd or you know or you can put some grilled pigeon if you feel like it You, you can really do anything or very easy starters when you're in a rush. It's like always have Codsway from the market in the freezer or a chicken liver pate or smoked Codsway are basically uh, ready in 10 minutes. It's the easiest thing. They taste delicious. And with sourdough bread, it's a great starter with a simple green salad. So I, I always build on a very easy starter. And then normally something slow cooked because that's also easy. Throw it in the oven if it's at the weekend. Not so during the week. During the week, you might do something faster. And then, you know, it could be, you know, a whole sea bass in the oven takes 30 minutes. So it might be with a Thai curry paste. All the ingredients for Thai curry paste are in the supermarket, whether it's lime leaves, lemongrass, garlic, ginger, galangal. Bash them all up into a magic mix, smother your sea bass, throw it in the oven. 30 minutes later, it's out. So it's quite good fun. I wrote a book called Home Cook last year, purely because I've cooked for so long, since I was six. I've learnt about the building blocks of food and how easy it is to feed people. But you have to have certain things in your arsenal, in your kitchen, in your larder, cupboards, fridge, freezer. Your freezer is your best friend. So I literally wrote my whole book on how to cook for yourself, how to feed your friends and yourself easily without spending hours. And that was the whole premise of the book. I think for me, people talk about healthy food and healthy living, eat happy, eat healthy. It's not about eating superfoods that are flown in around the world. It's eating from natural ingredients that have had as few processes. So whole foods that are fresh, cooked by you, that is how you eat healthily. And it doesn't matter if you eat fat, doesn't matter if you eat butter, olive oil, mayonnaise, 
chocolate, the occasional donut, none of that matters. What matters is not eating processed food. And so if you can cook a bit at home, like a homemade pesto. From scratch, from scratch. From from scratch, scratch, doesn't need to take hours. It can take 20 minutes. But that is the definition of healthy food. And nothing else will persuade me otherwise. I like it. Just before we finish, you didn't give me a pudding. Oh, pudding. Oh, my God. I mean, the easiest one. I don't really have a sweet tooth. I always have homemade quince jam or homemade tomato and chilli jam in the cupboard or fridge. So that with a cheese board or some homemade chocolate truffles I normally have in the freezer. But the easiest thing is bought vanilla ice cream with homemade chocolate sauce. I mean, it takes five minutes to make. Put some tequila mascal in. It's absolutely mm. delicious. Amazing. Thomasina, thank you so much. We are huge fans of Oaxaca here at Sherlock's. And I definitely need to go and try out DF Mexico, even if I'm the oldest person in there. That's it for today. I hope you've enjoyed that. Do please rate, review, subscribe and tell your friends. We'll see you next time. Bye bye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.